is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash healingpaths. That's path with an S. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm Jackie P. And I'm John T. Today on our podcast, we have a guest speaker, Vicki Tidwell-Palmer. Some of you may know her. She wrote the book, Moving Beyond Betrayal. Um, you've got stuff on your website. You do a lot of work with partners. And so we are so happy to have you, Vicki. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Yeah. Um, so I know we have quite a few uh, partners who listen to our podcast and are always hungry for episodes specifically for partners, but we also have several addicts who are listening to our podcast who also appreciate the um, episodes on partners for them to learn more and to help them understand the impact that the addiction has had on the partners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I want to mention about that, that one of the things I've noticed is so interesting uh, in my, on my website, on my blog, is that even though the blog really is geared toward betrayed partners, the posts that I write that are geared toward addicts, they are generally speaking the highest read uh, mm -hmm. articles and they get shared in a lot of uh, communities that are specific for addicts. So uh, that makes sense to me what you said. And also information for partners is often extremely helpful for mm -hmm. the unfaithful spouse or the addict. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, Vicki, give us a little bit of an overview of um, your approach to working with partners and, and maybe why you approach things the way that you do. Yeah. So I've been working with betrayed partners for a little over 10 years. And, you know, it's interesting because I was talking about this last night with uh, one of the clinicians that's in one of the online courses that is running right now. The, uh, I do two online courses for, uh, that are related to the book. Mm -hmm. And one is for partners and one is for clinicians. And they're both running right now. But we were talking about how we work with partners. And I think every uh, therapist, every coach, every clinician has their own style. And it might be a surprise to some people to learn that I'm pretty organic in the way that I work with partners. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is that Moving Beyond Betrayal, uh, my book and, and the five-step boundary solution that I present in the book, it's a very step-by-step -step sort of task-centered. It really is the, the first task-centered approach to working with partners. However, I approach partners um, with a, you know, sort of um, where they are. So mm -hmm. I, I really want to meet them where they are. And so for some partners, when I first come into contact with them, if they're having a lot of trauma symptoms, and they really need more regulation or they just need, you know, just essentially to, to have their nervous system calm down, which is really very common when mm -hmm. partners uh, first experience discovery or disclosure, then that's what we work on. Because the reality is, is that when you're experiencing that kind of that level of activation or triggering uh, and you're on high alert most of the time, it's very difficult to then move on to do even sometimes basic self-care or do the kind of boundary work that's needed in order to 
just feel better. I, I'm not even talking even now about the relational part, mm -hmm. but just to feel better. So sometimes that's the main focus. And then sometimes there are other partners uh, that they already have a history of doing boundary work, for example, like maybe they have an adult child or even a teenage child who's struggled with addiction. And so they may already have some experience with boundary setting, what boundaries are, how boundaries are useful. And so we can kind of pick up in the middle of a good boundary work, or I can really just do some education around what's particular around chronic uh, infidelity or sex addiction and do more kind of specialized work around what they already know. Mm. So uh, all that to say that I'm very organic in the way that I work with partners. And one of the most common questions that I get about my approach to working with partners is, do I work from a trauma model or do I work from a codependency model or a co-addiction model? Mm -hmm. And I talk about this in Moving Beyond Betrayal and I've written about it on my blog, but I approach it from it's a, a both and as mm -hmm. opposed to an either or. And I don't mean by that that I think that all betrayed partners struggle with codependency, although I would say I think most people in our culture struggle with codependency mm -hmm. right. to one degree or the other. Uh, but I'm definitely not of the mind that, you know, some, some betrayed partners, I, I, I hear these stories all the time where they, they go to see a therapist and the therapist immediately wants to give them books about codependency and talk to them about what's their part in the uh, addictive cycle. And I think that's really not helpful for partners. Mm -hmm. And I think it's much more effective to, as I've mentioned before, really look at what their trauma symptoms are in the beginning and addressing those. And my experience is that if there are codependency issues, they will come forward. They will bubble up and then we can address them at that time. Mm -hmm. I say that's similar to a family of origin work. That's not something that I would recommend a partner do immediately, but very often within about, you know, six months, six to 12 months, those issues come up. And for some partners, they begin to either be more aware of their own abuse history, meaning childhood abuse, or they really see the connection between what happened in the past and what is happening today. And they want to look at those. Mm -hmm. So, well, and I uh, find that when we let that come from an organic place, um, you know, they are ready for that information. They're starting to connect the dots. They're starting to ask those questions rather than us kind of pushing that on them and making them feel like either we're pathologizing them or blaming them. Um, it, they're ready to go there. They're already starting to go there. Right. Absolutely. Because really, you know, I, I think in the beginning, betrayed partners need support. They need someone to hear them. They need someone to validate. They need empathy. And if we as coaches or clinicians have an agenda around what they're supposed to be learning or doing, that can really hinder mm -hmm. their progress. <laughs> Yeah, And so I, I completely agree with, with what you said. And I, I think for a lot of betrayed partners coming to therapy, um, when the therapist or the coach can say, you've been keeping all of these balls in the air for a long time. Your life is very, very complicated. Let's really kind of pare down the focus and let's get you feeling better. Let's get you regulated. Let's, let's help you kind of clarify your thoughts and your intentions and all of that. I'd imagine that there's a large level of relief when we're not trying to 
you know, over-educate or, or read this book or read that book, but just focusing on where they're at, I imagine that really brings a large, large level of relief. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I was hearing you talk about that, it reminded me of, of some partners that I've worked with who came in with a lot of anger. Uh, I mean, intense anger to the point that they might even be um, not necessarily being physically abusive to the unfaithful spouse, but they're doing things like, you know, throwing things mm. or uh, punching the wall. Or, I mean, you know, there's, there's so many ways in which that can play out. But a lot of times just literally telling them, you know, I completely understand why you're so angry mm-hmm. and you have a right to be as angry as you are. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I have seen partners who've struggled with anger for months and months and months, have it almost disappear within a few weeks, yeah. just by having somebody say, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. you have a right to be angry. And then of course, helping them to be able to, to process that and express that in ways that are not harmful to themselves or other people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just, it provides a lot of relief having yeah. that kind of validation and also yeah. being with other partners who are experiencing the same thing and realizing that they're not unique and other people are going through exactly the same thing. That's why I think it's it's so important for betrayed partners to be in connection and contact Mm -hmm. with Uh others who are traveling the same path. Talk talk a little bit more about how betrayed partners can find those communities because in, I don't know if it's uh, just endemic to the area that we practice in, but that's one of the hardest things um, that we find our betrayed partners have to do is find people who get it, find people who know that story. So what, what options are out there? Yeah. You know, there are so many more today than there were uh, even when I became a CSAT, which was in, well, I started training in 2007 um, and, and mending a shattered heart wasn't even out at that mm-hmm. time. So you can see how quickly all of this, and it's really exciting, but there's so much more to do. But anyway, so much has happened just in the past nine years. And I do think that 12-step communities, like local 12-step communities, have been not as helpful as maybe they could be. Mm-hmm. So I, at least where I am, and actually Houston, I'm based in Houston. And it's interesting, but Houston is where the International Service Organization for both Co-Sex Addicts Anonymous and Sex Addicts Anonymous are. Mm. And so we have a huge community here, but even so, um, I don't see partners really using those communities. There, there are others like Infidelity Survivors Anonymous or Anon. There are several uh, 12-step communities out there, but then there are also uh, communities where they're more coach-led mm-hmm. and uh, even Celebrate Recovery, mm-hmm. for example, has uh, you know communities for partners. But what's really happened over the past several years is the ability for partners to connect from anywhere online. Mm -hmm. And so I created last year, August of 2016, an online community for betrayed partners. And we literally have partners from all over the world. And because of technology, it makes it so much easier for partners to connect. The other thing too, I want to mention about 12 step is that most of these communities like Essanon or Uh, I believe even Infidelity Survivors Anonymous have online meetings or they have phone meetings. So today it's much easier, but having that face-to-face connection Mm -hmm. is still a challenge, I think, for for most partners, even including in in big cities, you know, like Houston, where there are established communities. I'm pretty sure that COSA in Houston is at least 25 years old. 
Uh, but they really do need that kind of connection. It's just very validating mm-hmm. and healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I hope partners who are listening to this um, are getting from what we've talked about so far, I find sometimes with partners, um, they're in this place of kind of denying their needs, trying to keep things from being upended too much, trying to not rock the boat too much that they can also in recovery tend to deny their needs or say, well, it's much more important, you know, if we use the he is the addict, she is the partner format, where it's much more important for him to get help and then I'll be okay, instead of to really focus on, no, you need services yourself as well. And this has been a major trauma for you. And it's okay to put yourself as a priority. It's okay to look at your needs. It's okay to say, hey, you might need to spend time with the kids when I go to meetings or when I'm on the phone meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is a great point. And I've seen that many times with partners, even partners who, for example, had the resources to accept the help or to do more therapy mm-hmm. or to be in a group, they will tend to um, downplay or minimize mm-hmm. their need or defer maybe to their spouse. Mm-hmm. And that's been a really interesting conversation to have because often I believe that the history of that kind of mindset goes back a long way. Mm-hmm. So it's not just something happening in the present and that is really part of self-care for partners. And then there was something else that I wanted to say about, oh, is that here's what I really believe. And I talk about this all the time and, and I'm I have to be very mindful of the way I present this, but I truly believe, and I I think I'm right, that a partner's understanding of boundaries is so huge in her own healing process, but also the progress of her spouse. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that she's responsible for that, but when a betrayed partner really understands boundaries and how they work and also self-care, which I see as part of boundaries, it speeds up the individual, the partner's healing process, and I believe also the addict's process. Mm-hmm. And again, I just want to be clear, I'm not placing the responsibility on the partner, but it, it's another way to talk about the fact that this um, help and support is really important to you. So I, I, think that's a, I think that's a tricky, nuanced conversation about why boundaries are important without that being placed on the partner. So talk a little bit more and maybe even just back up. How do you define boundaries and Mm -hmm. how do betrayed partners start utilizing boundaries to restore sanity to themselves? Yeah. So on the first part about boundaries is that I want to start with saying that I think one of the most misunderstood concepts about boundaries is that boundaries are harsh. They're something that we do to other people. They're Mm -hmm. bad. They're not relational. Uh, in fact, I was listening to someone yesterday, someone that I, I really admire a lot. Is She's essentially a, a kind of a spiritual teacher. And she just said, frankly, she said, boundaries are selfish. Wow. And oh, wow. I, I believe that a lot of people, and, and I was a bit shocked, actually, because I respect this person a lot. And I, it was one of those situations where you, you think, you know, take what you like <laughs> and leave right. the rest. Um, but yeah, I think that's very common for people to see boundaries that way. But there's a, con- there's a part of boundaries, which I talk about as space. The reality is that boundaries create space for us. 
the person who's creating a boundary is actually expanding their space, their, their mental space, their emotional space, their physical space, their sexual space. That calms our nervous system when we have a sense of space. Mm-hmm. So I hope that that, that makes sense. Uh, but, but of course, there are limits. You know, there are limits that we place on ourselves. There are limits that we place on other people uh, around all of our interactions, whether it's talking about what we're thinking what we're feeling, how close or not close we want to be to someone physically or sexually. And they're also how we define ourselves. So like the snarky teenager in me yesterday, when I heard this woman say that boundaries were selfish, what I wanted to say to her is I wanted to say, okay, why don't you just like then tear down your house and take off your clothes? Because <laughs> those are all boundaries, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then peel off your skin, right? So mm-hmm. anyway, I have a very broad conception of boundaries. And so, but boundaries also define us. They define who we are. And what I mean by that is that when I decide what I'm going to share with someone, whether it's my thoughts or my emotions, I'm defining who I am mm-hmm. or even the way I choose to present myself or dress or, or what kind of car I drive, all those kinds of things. They're, they're ways that we define ourselves. And the second part of your question was about, um, Remind me what it was, because I'll go off in another direction that I wanted to talk about. Can, how, you, can you tell me the second part? Yeah, how does a betrayed partner get started in utilizing boundaries to help restore sanity and safety? Yeah, so, you know, it, at, the, um, at the risk of, of a, a shameless plug, I really would say to read Moving Beyond Betrayal, because mm-hmm. it will mm-hmm. tell them everything that they need to know about boundaries. Uh, but, but essentially, you've got to start with knowing what your reality is. You know, you've got to know what happened, what you think about it, how you feel about it. And then you figure out what, what is the vision that you want? What's the outcome that you want to have happen? And this Mm -hmm. is more really in the context of relationships. Mm -hmm. And when you figure that out, then you move on to, okay, do I have the power to create this outcome myself or not? Or does it involve a request? And this whole concept about request making is a huge part of the boundary setting process because unfortunately in the past, the way betrayed partners have been introduced to boundaries is that they've been told, okay, make a list of boundaries and then tell your partner what they are. That is not how boundaries work. If we want another person to do something, it requires their agreement. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have to make a request if it involves the action of another person. And so there's so many nuances like that about boundaries that really to my knowledge, before moving beyond betrayal came out, for sure partners just did not know. They didn't have that, that kind of information. But boundaries are complex. Um, there, there's a lot of nuances around, you know, how you set them up, as I was mentioning before, but also what do you do when they don't work? Mm-hmm. A lot of partners will come in and they say, well, I, I set this boundary, but it didn't work. And for them, it seems like that's the end, but really that's just a beginning. It's like, okay, why didn't it work? And let's look at what happened. Did it have to do with the request? Did it have to do with, it needs to be clear? Did it have to do that this person is just a chronic boundary violator? And if that's the case, then that is your new reality. And Mm -hmm. we start over. In terms of the five-step boundary solution process, you start over at step one. And so, you know, it it really is complex. And, And that's one of the reasons I was motivated and inspired to write the book was so people would have a better understanding of what they are and how they work and <clears throat> how you can use them for your self-care and, and to repair um, relationships that are damaged by chronic infidelity. That's so good. Yeah, I really like that um, the way you approach 
boundaries with partners. Um, you know, we know so many partners, there's a lot of gaslighting, there's a lot of crazy making that has happened um, to kind of get them off the scent, so to speak, right? To, to get right. them to back down. And the way that you approach boundaries really takes them into this place of connecting with the reality that they did know. Yes, exactly. And I often, regarding, <clears throat> excuse me, regarding gaslighting, I often tell partners that if they're in a conversation or any kind of interaction with their spouse and they start to feel foggy or fuzzy or they start thinking that they're crazy, I just tell them to take a relational timeout mm -hmm. because there's probably something going on. And even today when I feel that way, when I'm in a conversation with somebody, I'm thinking, this just doesn't really fit for me. This doesn't, I don't mean fit like I don't agree with it, but it just doesn't make sense to me. I'm not mm -hmm. following the train of thought, even though I'm asking questions and really, you know, attempting to understand there's something happening there. And that's a really great tool for partners is to, you know, it's like talking to somebody if they're altered or they're mm -hmm. using. It's the mm -hmm. same as when someone is gaslighting. And sometimes the person gaslighting is not doing it intentionally. It's just part of the addictive cycle. But a boundary, <clears throat> excuse me, is that you don't necessarily have to engage with mm -hmm. that. You don't mm -hmm. have to continue the conversation. Yeah, you had um, you'd mentioned um, near the beginning that um, there's so much more to do uh, with partners. And I thought it was interesting that the, your blog posts that get the most traction um, mm -hmm. are, the, are the ones where addicts are reading about partners' experiences. Um, and, I, and so I think this, um, this more emerging and strengthening voice as to partners' experiences is important because healing from sex addiction has to be a relational thing. And there's that piece right. of empathy that has to come in. What are some of the next places you see um, healing for partners or resources for partners needing to go? Well, you mean in terms of what's not developed yet? Yeah, yeah. What are we? What are we still needing? Yeah, I I would say that what I find surprising is that even with the amount of information that's out there, and of course I'm in, in this field and in this industry, so I know where to find it, but I'm still somewhat surprised at how little uh, people know where to go to get information. Mm. And so I think there is a huge need for us as a treatment community to be able to get out the word about how you find really good quality expert information mm. so that partners can be more highly informed because a lot of times what I find that's a challenge for them is that they just didn't know. They didn't know some basic things about, for example, how, how disclosure works or what they can expect from, uh, from a person who's in recovery for sex addiction. That's why I spent a fairly a good amount of time in moving beyond betrayal talking about what does a sex addiction treatment plan look like? Mm. Because without that information, you really don't have the basis to know what, what should I expect or what is a reasonable request for me to make. So I think we're still at that place where we need to, to do a better job as, as a, a community to get the word out. And that's why I, I write about these, these topics all the time. And in fact, probably in early December, I'm going to do a free, actually, no, it, it's not going to be free because of the nature of what I'm presenting, but I'm going to do 
a presentation on formal therapeutic disclosure mm. specifically for partners to tell them this is what disclosure looks like. This is what mm-hmm. you should generally expect in a disclosure. And because this is an area I get so many questions mm-hmm. about in my community and other places. And I think that it's very helpful to for partners to have that kind mm-hmm. of information. Well, and I think it's also helpful when we're talking about disclosure. I know when I'm working with a partner, part of my job, and I think it's it's a tricky part sometimes, is to navigate that place between saying, yes, you have a right to this information, and you have a right to it in a certain way that isn't damaging to you, that isn't kind of this drinking from a fire hose, which is sometimes, you know, I think if left unguided, that's where partners and addicts will go to. Right, right. And then they, or they try to do it themselves. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and recently, here's something that really excites me is that partners are way more informed, even mm-hmm. though it sort of contradicts what I just said, but it's still, it's all true. They're way more informed <laughs> today than they were five years ago. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so they've started making requests. Like just recently, I've had a couple of partners that they just did not want to hear any sexual history, any childhood sexual history of their spouse. And, you know, there, there is some, there are some times when that information can be helpful to partners. But uh, for example, one partner requested that she, she was willing to hear it. She didn't want to hear it at the disclosure. Mm. And so there are all kinds of ways where you can customize or some partners don't want specific types of information. And so mm-hmm. part of my process when I prepare a partner for formal therapeutic disclosure is that we go through all those things and she does get to say, no, I don't want that information or yes, I do. Yeah. And to customize it in that way. And I, I think that's extremely helpful because disclosure is traumatic no matter what. Mm-hmm. It, it is traumatic even if the partner knows 80 or 90% of what is right. in the disclosure. And the reason is because she has no idea what she's getting ready to hear. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's traumatic. And so whatever we can do to make it as easy as it can be, even though it's traumatic, the, the better. Even mm-hmm. I, I want to share this, uh, speaking of boundaries, even the way that the couple is positioned, meaning mm-hmm. physically in the office, I, I find that a lot of times there's no attention given to that at all. And when you have two people sitting where they're, you know, two feet apart in an office and this partner sitting there and she doesn't know what she's going to hear, I don't think her nervous system is probably calm enough. Mm-hmm. So I spend time before a disclosure really setting it up and making sure she has enough space to be able to take in what's being said. Mm-hmm. And if that means she needs to sit three or four or five feet away from her spouse, mm-hmm. then that's what she needs. And that's part of boundary work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think recognizing, you know, oftentimes when we do disclosure, it's being done in the office. I mean, if she didn't want this, we're talking about partners is that they're always female and we know that they're not, but, um, right. But if the partner wants that in their office, right, the office of their therapist, now occasionally they may not prefer to have that, but I think most often that's their space, that's where they're familiar, and that's where they have felt safe and grounded. Um, Mm -hmm. So even having those discussions and being aware, you know, like you were saying, that from the setup of the office and where it's being held, the discussions beforehand, all of those need to be taken into consideration before we go into disclosure. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, so for, for me, one of the big things that's standing out in this conversation, you keep talking about space um, that partners need. And, and I know based on this conversation, that's something I'm going to take into my practice uh, with much more awareness. I wonder, Vicki, if you could speak to any other points that you feel like we frequently miss or we frequently overlook in the partner's experience or how to help partners. Yeah, well, I don't know that it's so much maybe what we miss, but I think that one of the things that we can often correct for partners that they may not even know that needs correcting is this misunderstanding. Again, I go, I'm going back to the request process. So it's interesting, this, this internal dance that partners do. It's like on the one hand, uh, when they're, they get very agitated about something, they'll say things like, and I told him, you're going to do, you know, fill in the blank. And so I have to talk to him about, well, actually, you know, he's an adult. Mm -hmm. And so what you can do is you can say, this is what I need from you. I would like you to do such and such. Is that something you're willing to do? Because mm -hmm. we can't tell another adult person what to do. Mm -hmm. So you have that piece. But then I'll have, and it's interesting because this could actually be the same partner. Then the, the other one is the partner will say something like, you know, I would really like him to join a therapy group, for example, but I don't, I don't want to ask him that because I'd be telling him what to do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not true. So a mm -hmm. request is not telling a person what to do. So it's this very interesting dance between and really understanding what requests mean. So if I say to my partner, you know, I'm, I have a concern about your level of involvement in your recovery and what would really help me to feel more confident in what you're doing is I would really like you to join a therapy group, a weekly therapy group with a CSAT. You notice how specific mm -hmm. that request mm -hmm. was? A weekly therapy group with a CSAT and I'd like you to commit to doing that for at least a year. That's a fabulous request, by the mm -hmm. way. Is that something you'd be willing to do? That is not a demand. That is not right. telling a person what to do because her spouse has the right to say, yes, I'd be happy to do that, which is the right answer. Or mm -hmm. uh, no, I'm not willing to do that. Or here's what I am willing to do, mm -hmm. the negotiation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a place where we can really um, help partners understand that better because the request making process is huge and, and it's an ongoing issue in mm -hmm. relationships. One of the things, Vicki, that I was thinking about, too, that I'd like you maybe to speak to, um, that I was thinking about as I was preparing to, to talk to you today and record this episode, I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, maybe it was a couple months ago or a month ago on the listserv, on our CSAT listserv, it came up kind of this idea about how often partners can be pushed into forgiveness, and so if you could just talk a little bit, I thought you gave a great response on the listserv that basically just said, forgiveness happens when it happens. Um, but if you could talk a little bit about that, because I do find that sometimes partners push themselves to that place of forgiveness, but they can also be, whether it's from ecclesiastical leaders or friends or family members, kind of pushed into this forgiveness expectation. Yeah, and that's a great point, especially the last part you said about whether they may feel pushed into it by their spiritual or religious beliefs or family members. And I've seen all of that. And it's very problematic. And it's really problematic when 
when the partner is not only getting that kind of pressure, but she already feels her own internal pressure mm -hmm. that she should forgive because she has this concept or idea about forgiveness and that somehow she's not going to be free until she forgives or she's not a good person until she forgives. And the way that I see forgiveness, and I, I write about this in Moving Beyond Betrayal, is I see forgiveness as a very organic process. That forgiveness is like, I, I even, I think I talk about it as like a little seedling, you know, that's sprouting. Mm -hmm. And you have to just kind of let it do what it's going to do and grow and, and develop in its own time. And I, I do find, I've actually found this myself around forgiveness, is that it's almost like one day you just kind of wake up and realize that you've forgiven, but maybe you mm -hmm. didn't know, or you mm -hmm. have some experience. You know, I had a partner recently share with me, uh, just a, it was an unbelievable coincidence that happened in her life. And what she realized when it happened was the progress that she had made mm -hmm. uh, and also the level of forgiveness that she had around this particular incident. But I, I just see it as a very organic process. And, and I, I don't know where I first heard this term, but I really like the term spiritual bypass. Mm -hmm. I see pushing forgiveness as a kind of spiritual bypass. And the problem with any kind of spiritual bypass, which basically means I'm going to just ignore my feelings of pain, my feelings of hurt and anger and even rage uh, because those are not okay feelings, and I'm just going to go straight for forgiveness. The problem with that is that we essentially stop good emotional circulation. Mm -hmm. And so just like if we stop like blood that. circulation in our body, something bad is going to happen. I, I think it's the same thing uh, with doing spiritual bypass around forgiveness. It's mm -hmm. like we need to process the feelings and have them because to me, that's what creates, again, the space mm -hmm. to be able to later on forgive. And I, and I, I really encourage partners to just put that aside, to even yeah. release it as a goal if they can, or put it in a God box and just mm -hmm. say, you know, that'll happen when it's time. But I'm glad yeah. that you brought that because it's a good point. Yeah, because I think sometimes, like you said, if we don't set it aside and let it happen on an organic level, um, maybe the individual does, maybe the people in their life who are pressuring that, but there seems to be a certain outcome attached to forgiveness, right? That, that when you forgive, it's going to look this way and the family's going to be happy and everything's going to be tied up with a nice bow. And and forgiveness, like you were saying, is much more complicated than that. And so we've got mm -hmm. to just be able to set it aside. And yeah, sometimes we recognize like, you know, we may, like you were saying with your client, pick it up sometimes and say, oh, wow, look at the progress that I made along these lines that I didn't realize I was working on. But it mm -hmm. lets them have whatever outcome is coming and whatever feelings and emotions that they're having there's space for that because we, we don't have this certain prescription that it should look like. Right. And I, I you know, as, as you're talking about that, it, it, it makes me have this thought that it would probably be really helpful when a partner is, is kind of attached to this whole concept of forgiveness to ask her, okay, so tell me, what do you think it would be like if you had forgiven or if you were able to, what would be different Mm. than it is now because that's a good way to kind of uh, see what is it she thinks is going to happen or maybe mm -hmm. she's just trying to please other people because mm -hmm. I think you're right you know some family members do that because they're not sure if the couple's going to stay together and they're very attached to that because they don't want divorce in their family or mm -hmm. they, whatever it is and I think that that can be really a helpful question to ask to and to help them get more clarity about why they feel so compelled mm -hmm. to forgive 
Yeah. I love that. And that's a, it's a powerful phrase when you said it cuts off the emotional circulation. Um, in, in my work with partners, I think that's a concept that's really important to pay attention to anything that's restricting that flow of emotion, um, does put them at risk. So I, I appreciate, I appreciate that phrase. Yeah. I like that analogy about the blood in the body. It just yeah. makes sense. People get it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so Vicki, how, how do people find you? Um, when they want your book, uh, this seminar coming up in December, how, how do people find you? Yeah, so my website is vickitidwellpalmer.com and the book, which is Moving Beyond Betrayal, the five-step boundary solution for partners of sex addicts, it's available on Amazon um, and it's available in paperback and also Kindle. So mm-hmm. you can get an e-version of it if you want. And about the therapeutic disclosure presentation in December, Really just go to the website and probably the best thing to do would be to um, just, there's a contact page and, you know, if somebody's interested in that, they could just mention it when they fill out the contact page and we'll make sure that they get on the right list in order to get those updates. And, and also, you know, my blog, I have to mention this because it's, it's really a big deal. There's so much information there. I've got over 120 articles on my blog and it's searchable so mm-hmm. they can Anybody can enter any search terms about topics that they want more information about. Oh, and it will great. all the articles about those topics. So it's just a great, you know, source of information, which I think is, as I mentioned before, it's huge for partners to have that. Yes. Yeah, I think oftentimes partners legitimately so have felt overlooked and lost. And so well, getting they have been overlooked. Yes. In the past. Yes, and so getting the word out there about the resources and the work that has been done um, on behalf of partners and where they can go for good information that is specific and compassionate towards partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you, you had mentioned, Vicki, the importance of getting connected with good information and seeing that as kind of a next step this needs to go. So I don't know if our endorsement counts for anything, but um, I would definitely <laughs> endorse the work that you're doing as that really good, solid information. And I uh, cool, just, just want to say thanks again for coming on the show today. This has been a great conversation. I think it'll be very helpful to our listeners. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. And also just want to acknowledge you all for, for doing this work too and, and uh, creating a podcast and, and making this information available to, to betrayed partners and, and addicts as well. Thank, thank you. you. Mm-hmm. So, so at the end of another episode, we want to remind you that your story matters. And remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story with us until it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths, Inc., or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I'm learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.